Hello, everybody, and welcome to Tuesdays with Merton. My name is Dan Haran. I'm a Franciscan friar, and I'm the director of the Center for Spirituality and professor of philosophy, religious studies, and theology here at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. Tuesdays with Merton is co-sponsored by the International Thomas Merton Society and our Center for Spirituality here at St. Mary's College. The webinars are aired on the second Tuesday of each month, and you all know that because you are here. Congratulations and welcome. You'll be able to ask questions today using the chat feature in Zoom. We ask that you send your questions either to me directly or to Dr. Ellen Culp, or you can put them in the main box and I will kind of uh, curate them and keep an eye out for them. Um, we'll see if we have time to get to questions because we've got already a queue ready to go. Um, speaking of Dr. Alan Culp, uh, he is uh, a professor of religion at Baldwin Wallace University, a member of the ITMS Board of Directors, and he will be hosting this conversation this evening with our guest and speaker, Sophronia Scott. For best results, I recommend that you choose, if you know how, in the upper right corner of your Zoom screen, uh, the speaker view selection for the presentation viewing that'll allow you to see our two speakers, um, unless you wanna scope around and see who else is on the call and you're most welcome to do that as well. Finally, please note that we are recording this webinar and it will be available on YouTube as well as in audio form as a podcast soon after this live event this evening. So without further ado, let me introduce our distinguished guest and presenter this evening, Sophronia Scott. She is a novelist and essayist and a leading contemplative thinker whose work has appeared in numerous publications, not the least of which among her uh, wonderful publications is her latest book, this right here, The Seeker and the Monk, Everyday Conversations with Thomas Merton, which received the Louis Award, that is the International Thomas Merton Society's highest award for books, this past June of 2021. Sophronia's other books include Love's Long Line and This Child of Faith, Raising a Spiritual Child in a Secular World, which was co-written with her son. She holds degrees from Harvard and Vermont College of Fine Arts. Sophronia lives in Sandy Hook, Connecticut, and is the founding director of Alma College's MFA in Creative Writing, which is a graduate program based in Alma, Michigan. Today's presentation, our theme this evening is The Radio of Nature, Merton's Tuning Into God Outdoors. Welcome, Sophronia. Welcome, Alan. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Alan. Well, I just will welcome people on and particularly welcome you, Sophronia. I know that you would like to start with one of your own poems to, to set the stage, and so I invite you to begin. Thank you. So, what I'm going to read for you is a prose poem, and it's in the form of something called a dervish essay. Uh, it's a form that my dear friend Robert Vivian, who teaches English at Alma College, works in, and it's a kind of energy spinning thing, which is why it's called a dervish essay. The reason I'm going to read it for you this evening is because it's called Honoring Autumn, and next week is indeed the first day of, of autumn. And this will kind of ground us in what we're going to talk about this evening in terms of nature and connection. Honoring autumn. Honoring autumn, I turn my face to accept its first golden kiss. 
one silent plea for attention. So honoring autumn, I sit on a rock in the forest, patient audience to each leaf tumbling, honoring autumn with my presence, which autumn returns to me with the word moment, wrapped in twigs and wild grapevines that fall through my hands so the word disappears at once as I sense it. And I offer my full gaze, honoring autumn because no one wants to die alone, not even the sugar maple leaves that burn bright red just to make me look. And honoring autumn, I do, and see these leaves aflame and dying as tiny phoenixes again and again. And in their smoke, I smell cinnamon. And in their smoke, I smell nutmeg. And I receive the promise of their dying as ashes, which I need since in honoring autumn, I am listening to the bell tolls of my own death gently approaching, and I will not miss it as I would if I didn't think to cherish the leaves before a rainstorm, knowing many will be loosed before their time. And honoring autumn, I am hospice, preparing flowers for their winter demise, and I am hope, slipping bulbs like loving secrets into the earth. And honoring autumn, I remember the seed that sprouted my son, planted in me in autumn, and how he blooms and blooms in everyday spring, reminding me of resurrection, even as I am honoring autumn, which I must do because death still must come first. And I lower my aging body into hot baths, so I will not resent the coming cold already creeping over the floorboards. And honoring autumn, I emerge from this liquid, glowing and warm, a newborn Venus, baptized and eager to embrace harvest moon, hanging full and heavy like a sleepy baby, drunk from his mother's breast, and honoring autumn because autumn is orange like my hair and yellow like my skin and brown like my eyes and teaching me how the beauty of all three will soon fall away but autumn whispering hope and autumn whispering love. And I am listening autumn and I'm once more red riding hood with my basket of light and smiles traipsing through the tangled neverwood of a beloved friend's dream to deliver autumn's message that we are eternal despite the falling all around us. And honoring autumn, he awakens and remembers he already heard this in a river carrying the autumn leaves away to their watery decay. And I awaken to those autumn leaves glowing yellow outside my window and autumn calling me to come for I nearly slept through the moment of their letting go and I rise so I can learn to do the same releasing ego and essence evermore into deep deep blue autumn skies and what is left of me falls into the softness of the loam returning to the first bed of my being to await the precious breath of the divine drawing me into life again. Thank well, you. that was powerful. For listening to that. <laughs> Thank you now, so much for that and focusing on nature, um, which was one of my favorite pieces in, in your book, talking about finding, finding God in nature, basically. I love the line where you say, to know Merton's work is to know his landscape. And you talk about God's presence there and transcendence, but then you talked about, we use nature to cultivate awareness of God. And you focused on three things, walking, which didn't surprise me, weather, which did a little, and then what you call rooms of the outdoor home. Yeah. 
could you comment further on those and, and why those three and how to know Merton is to know his landscape? Well, that's a lot all at once, Alan. So let's see where, where to begin. So uh, I'm going to re reply with something that, that's, that's in that same chapter. So uh, Alan is referring to chapter four in the book, I Am a Bird Waiting. And, and I say, uh, to know Merton's work is to know this landscape because he photographed it and wrote about it so often from basic observations about the weather to contemplative ruminations, connecting the natural world to the divine presence at work. And then I go on to talk about how, you know, I assumed Merton's connection to the woods around the monastery grew from the earliest days as a young novice. But then I, I learned that he was not allowed beyond the walls on his own. Right? He only went beyond those walls in his early years at the monastery to work in the fields with his brothers, and he would come back in again. So Merton lived the first eight years of his monastic life for the most part behind the abbey's walls, and yet he found the experience less than peaceful. He chafed at having little time to himself because of his duties, and as royalties from his books flowed and the abbey began the noisy work of renovations and the machination of its farming and cheesemaking activities, he found quiet hard to come by. He wanted solitude. Uh, and then at a certain point in June, uh, June 27th, 1949, he writes in his journal, Reverend Father gave me permission to go out of the enclosure into the woods by myself. On that day, his writing and his spirituality changed forever. And there's this footnote in Merton's journals, uh, the expansiveness and depth of Merton's prose as he recalls his walk um, is a day uh, on which Merton's life at Gethsemane breaks out beyond a past mental and physical confinement. And Monica Weiss uh, wrote, once beyond the monastery walls, Merton's heart soared. And to me, that didn't happen just because he was taking a walk in the woods, that, that he went out there and, didn't find, and found not only solitude, but this, this connection, which I, I'm, I'm guessing is, is like a frequency. Right when you're out there, uh, he often walked barefoot out in the woods. That that you can tune into the the living breath of this earth, right? And and if if we are to to hear God, I think that that's where a voice begins. If if we can tune into it, if we can even become the frequency of of what that could be for us for our souls. And what's nature been like for you? You grew up in Ohio and Northeast Ohio, and now you're living in Connecticut. So how do, how do you use nature to uh, cultivate the awareness of God as you talk about it? Uh, you know, Alan, my, my first awareness of God as a child was in nature. Right. So, so kind of like Merton, I guess you could say, you know, I, I grew up in a very small house and I had six siblings. And the only time I had to myself was when I, I would go out into this field or into this little scrub of woods behind our house. And sometimes I would just be sitting out there. And, and I, I mean, as a child, right? I'm out there by myself. And I remember 
seeing a sunbeam and it felt it felt like a presence to me it felt like a friend and and I didn't know what that was it wasn't until later I learned about God and and I immediately connected it to that sunbeam and it was like saying oh there you are that's what that was (laughs) and um and Alan you, you and I saw each other in Ohio recently and we had this discussion about how you know, I've been in the Midwest a lot lately, and I find myself reconnecting with the sky of my childhood hmm. and recognizing these, these skies where, where I felt very connected to God and, and, and recognizing them again and, and making that, um, that, that childlike connection. And, and, you know, the sky is the sky. You would think the sky here in Connecticut is, is the same as the sky in Ohio, but there is something very different. Hmm. And... Um, and and that's where it began for me to to know that 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 there, there's something there. Yeah, cool. Well, I'm, I'm going to take us to a little different place. There there's so many places in the book where I was uh, enriched by reading what you said, and and I love how you will work off of personal stories. And one of my favorites was uh, the trip that you did in a carpool. There were two or three carpools going off to, to meet, to, to hear a, a speaker somewhere. Mm-hmm. And you talked about how inspired and animated the speech was for you and how in the ride back in your car, there was all sorts of engagement around the speech and everybody was turned on. And then you got home and realized, learned that the folks in the other car had not even talked about the speech. You couldn't believe it. And I love your line you say, I still think about how much it matters who travels with me. Yeah. And I thought, oh, that's good. And I would be interested in you commenting on that story, but I'm more interested in, as you look back over your life, who has traveled with you that's been real a difference maker? Um, could be living, it could be dead, but who have been your travel mates through your journey in life heretofore? You know, um, Merton, Merton had his brothers in the monastery, but you know, also like the, the disciples of Christ, you know, we were not meant to, to pursue the spiritual journey alone. You know, uh, we are meant to, as a people, to support each other, to encourage each other, to challenge each other. And, and, and sometimes it can be hard to, to, find, to find that. Um, I have a, a tremendous connection to my Harvard classmates because they they taught me they taught me how to engage in the world right? that this world is, is big but but I don't have to be voiceless in it and the thing that I love about my classmates is that willingness to engage and just this past Sunday I was at the Arnold Arboretum in Boston, Massachusetts with some of my classmates uh, for a ceremony for for a classmate uh, who died last year. And we were doing a a moving meditation. uh, And and these are recorded meditations that that are um, a feature of the Arboretum that's going on right now. And in this particular one, it was meant to be done as a group. and I was thinking, and, and we had to, to circle around this huge birch tree and, and put our hands on it and consider it and, and to basically embrace this tree together with our hands held together. And I stood there thinking, 
there are not many people I know who who would dive into that so completely and and so fearlessly and and we embraced each other as as we did this tree and and other aspects of nature walking around that place and I I felt a, a deep love a, a deep connection and so, so they they mean a lot to me and not not just as friends like like my classmates challenge me as a whole as a group but also individually and and when we get together special things like that happen so um so that's that's a group um robert vivian who i mentioned earlier <clears throat> i wouldn't even be writing about faith if it weren't for him hmm. because we would have conversations uh, about about god about connection about trust and and he would listen to me and, and he would say, you, you need to write about this. And I had no feeling like, oh, who would be interested in this? This is, you know, to me, a, a sense of God is very personal. And I didn't think it would interest anybody else what I, you know, how I experience God or think about God. But but he encouraged me to do that. And uh, and it's brought me, it's brought me on this path. And it's interesting because it's brought me together with other people who who are uh, who are traveling the same road and I learned that the best thing I can do as a writer is, is basically to to just talk about what I experienced that I don't have to tell people to do anything or I don't have to teach anything I just say this is this is what I've experienced and and when I do that people recognize that they will say oh my gosh that happened to me too, or something like that happened to me as well. And it makes a connection for them. Or um, they will say, you put words to something that I felt all along and, and could not vocalize. So, so Robert Vivian brought me to that, you know, helped me find a, a, a place to, to talk about God. And in return, you know, that opens up a space where I can have more people, right? Uh, my friend Sarah Arthur, uh, she lives in Michigan. She's another writer. Uh, she's uh, just a tremendous, um, just a, a support and, and conversationalist. Um, Lynn, Lynn Westfield at the um, at the Wabash Center, you know, uh, and we talk about this a lot. You know, how how to help people write, uh, to talk about religion, to talk about faith. Um, so that, that, that's on a personal level. If we think about the people who aren't around, you know, like Thomas Merton, right? So um, hugely influenced by Thomas Merton. Um, and, and don't laugh at me, but I've, I've been, I've been reading a lot about Robin Gibb of the Bee Gees. And there's something, there's a conversation going on there that I'm still figuring out. Um, Frederick Beekner is still with us. I read a lot of Beekner, and I was thinking this week I need to get back to reading more of him because Frederick Beekner talks about how God is speaking to you through your life, right? And, and how do we pay attention? How, how are we awake to the, the everyday essence of who we are? Um, that's a long list. I don't know. <laughs> is that answering your question, Alan? Oh, yeah, it's, it's just, it's really important. I think. Uh... You may be in some ways talking about spiritual friends, which is an important concept. And I, I'm just interested in, in uh, somebody saying, yeah, it matters who travels with me. And uh, 
in many cases, we have choices. And in some cases, uh, our travel made is a gift. Okay, so the important thing, and I'm going to read this, this part from my book, is to recognize when someone has, has caught you in that way, right? And, and that's what happened with, with me and Thomas Merton, right? So, and actually, uh, it, was, it was Robert Vivian who I heard him read this portion from uh, Merton's Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander. So um, it was called, the, the section that's called The Night Spirit and the Dawn Air begins with how the valley awakes, right? So hearing these words, to put it simply, set my world on fire. The first chirps of the waking birds mark the point verge of the dawn underneath a sky as yet without real light, a moment of awe and inexpressible innocence when the father in perfect silence opens their eyes. They begin to speak to him, not with fluent song, but with an awakening question that is their dawn state, their state at the point Vierge. Their condition asks if it is time for them to be. He answers, yes. Then one by one, they wake up and become birds. They manifest themselves as birds beginning to sing. Presently, they will be fully themselves and will even fly. Meanwhile, the most wonderful moment of the day is that when creation in its innocence asks permission to be once again, as it did on the first morning that ever was. And then I go on to say, suddenly I wanted to be outside at the crack of dawn, eager to sense the voice of the creator spirit, giving the waking birds their, this vital message, their cue. It is time for you to be. I too wanted God to tell me it was time for me to be. Merton goes on to say, here's an unspeakable secret. Paradise is all around and we do not understand. I felt something open up in my whole being. It felt immense and small at the same time because it felt like one word, yes. Yes, I thought, that's exactly it. Now imagine, Alan, if I had felt that, if I thought that, and then just went about my day, I said, oh, that was nice. Wow, that was that's kind of inspiring. And and just, you know, forgot about it, right? But but I think we all have moments like this when, when something catches us and 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 we are struck by beauty. We are struck by the words and and it's speaking to something deep within us. You know, um Frederick Beekner says that that when when um, when you're in tears that, that those tears are speaking something, speaking to the mystery of, of who you are and of where you are to go next if you are to save your soul, right? And, and I feel that, that we have energy like that and, and we have to dive into it and see what it is. You know, I had no idea who this Merton guy was, but, but there was something in, in, I knew that I was gonna learn something about myself if I went and learned about him. And, and that's the connection I think that, that we're seeking when, when we have that kind of energy uh, between spiritual friends. In, in language I use with students, I would say, well, we're, we're all given opportunities like you were given there, but you were opportunistic. What is it about you that becomes opportunistic that rather than say, oh, that was fun or whatever, that you, you gravitate, gravitated towards it and, and you latched onto it. And look, here we are, what, 10 years later with a great book and a conversation with a bunch of interesting people. So what is it in you that's 
able to see an opportunity and go for it. Oh goodness, um, I don't know. Maybe some of it is is the thing that makes me a writer. <clears throat> you know, I was I was also a journalist. I I pay attention. I I listen. I I'm I'm watching. Right. Um, I think this is also where prayer and meditation come in, because to me, prayer and meditation settles you so that in the whirl of a moment, you can see, right? No matter, you know, if, if things are crazy, things are, are going on, there's a quiet that, that shows you, look, there's something there, or look, there's something there to be done. You know, pay attention. Um, you know, I, I also feel that, and, and, and this may sound strange, it's on a certain level about respecting myself, right? And, and not being afraid to go towards something that feels good and is fascinating to me. Um, I, I write a little bit about this in the book that that sometimes I, I feel we are really hard on ourselves and, and we even have a hard time loving because we just can't believe um, that, that someone loves us. And, and I also think that this is the, the big secret towards the resistance to God is that, and, and, and to Christ is that we just can't believe that somebody loves us that much and that unconditionally, right? Grace is just so unfathomable. But, but at the core, we have to love ourselves to, to recognize that we are worthy, right? So, so I, I see a gift and, and I won't turn away from it. Like if, if, you know, God is putting something out there for me saying, here little girl, anything, anything you want. And, and I am a child again, right? And what child do you know has ever turned away from a gift? Right? What child is like, oh no, that Christmas present is not for me. Right. So so I'm I'm I am that child on, on Christmas morning. Oh my gosh. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And now I will. Let me look at this. Let me open this and see what's in this package. Keep going for it. You mentioned <laughs> love. I, I would like to to turn us to some of the stuff that you say about love. Um you 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 share some of the well-known story about Merton and the young nurse, but then you cite his um, 1966 piece. The original title was A Buyer's Market for Love. And um, you talked about how so often love is a quest taking us outside of ourselves in the contemporary sense into the market. Yeah. And once love goes into the market, as you say, love becomes a deal. And you'd say, what would I tell Merton now, except that the market is really fast and it's digital. And then you described our culture as a swipe right culture, credit cards. So could you comment on that? You were updating Merton in a, in a way that was really both provocative and delightful to me, a swipe right culture about yeah. love and the deal-making. You know, I was, I was amazed by how brilliant he was in, in describing the, the dating process, right? Here's, here's this monk 
you know, who, who was really notorious in his day, you know, as a, as a young man with the ladies. And, and he's talking about looking at that experience, looking back at that experience and, and so concisely describing it that it, that it, it was a marketplace, right? And you are valuing yourself by what you perceive as your value in the marketplace. Am I attractive? You know, is a, a man or woman going to be interested in me? And if not, then I'm, I am not worthy, right? So he, I was just shocked by how, how, how bigger that is today and how we've compartmentalized it into our phones and how it happens like this now. Like instead of, of you know, going on a date and spending time with a person and then making that decision, well, he's not right for me. You can like just look at a person and, and um, okay, yes, no, yes, no. And, and what does that do to our, our connection to both other humans and to ourselves that, that we can be, uh, you know, um, looked at, you know, uh, measured up, discarded that fast. Right. And, and I don't think we think about how, how it makes us perceive others in that way, not just on our phones, but the way we connect in everyday life, that we are, we are quick to, to discard, you know, assess and discard, assess and discard. Yeah. Right. And, and that takes away something of, of our connection to our humanity. You know, Merton writes beautifully about union, about how we are all one. At our, at our essence, we are all one, we are all part of our creator. And to me, we lose that sense of union when we are constantly discarding others in this way. Yeah, you, you do have a way with words and I love your phrases, it's like swipe right culture, that's a good one. We, we would miss an opportunity, Sophroni, if we didn't um, have some conversation about racism. Um, Merton certainly took that issue on in, in ways that um, really were ahead of the time. And uh, you also deal with it in that, particularly in the chapter where you're talking about how to resist racism. Um, you talked about resisting racism is, is really, it's about dignity, I'm quoting you, about dignity, respect, a shared humanity, and ultimately our hearts and souls. You talked about realizing from Merton and seeing him say he, he knew even in the 60s or before something was very wrong. And in some ways, it's still wrong, which is sad. Yeah. And I, I really liked when you talked about resisting racism. So, quote, I don't become what I behold. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what I mean by that is, is um you know, not taking on the hate, right? That I see in the world, and um, and 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 I see that I see that in in protests where where hate is met with hate, and I don't know, I don't know where to fit in there because that's that's not in me, and yet, how do I find a way to think about this, to talk about it, to to live it? You know, I have a son who who you know need to understand what's going on in the world. So I, I approached reading Merton on race very much from a personal viewpoint of, you know, I'm looking for a way 
to figure out how to process all of this without losing the essence of who I am, right? How do I approach this, um, you know, with a sensibility of, of compassion? Um, and, and, you know, I wanted someone to speak to me in the way that, that I look at other people in, in the world. And that's the way that, that Merton spoke to me, right? There's a wonderful um, paper by Gregory Hillis where it's about Merton advising a black priest. And, and this priest is complaining because his, his bishop is being very hard on him because he's been taking the, the Catholic church to task for, for the racism within it. You know, he talks about how, you know, white parishioners won't call him father, how they will, you know, put together money just to have a, a black person sent to a different parish so that they, a black person isn't in their church. Um, and Merton responded to him by saying that, that he had to have this, this black priest had to have compassion for the bishop, but you have to, to see that, that, that he has been schooled to think this way, that, that he has not had his eyes open to understand that, that how wrong this is, and that you have to have compassion for him on those grounds. And, and that he, as a priest, that it could even be his position to work for conversion of his bishop. Mm -hmm. And when I, when I read that, I was thinking, whoa, okay, we're talking about faith here. We're talking about converting someone's way of thinking, right? And, and to understand that, that they, they come to this belief because racist beliefs are at, at the very heart, ignorant beliefs, right? And if we come to have compassion for that ignorance, Right. And, and to, to understand that, that this person is acting out of lack, out of, a, out of um, unlovingness, out of misunderstanding. And, and if we can somehow hold the space for that person to, to, to come through this and not to meet their hate with more hate, then I saw that as, okay, I see an answer there, right? It may not make sense to everybody, but for me, I see a way to be in the world a way to look at racism and, and to, to not have it wound me, right? A way to have a, a discussion about it, a way to not have my heart broken every time I see something horrible on the news. Um, I saw a way to hope, a hope for a, a better way of being. And you talk about conversion as a solution to racism. Merton said that. That was yeah. his word, not mine. Yeah, well, I think it's a pretty good idea. Does yeah. that make sense to you? And how would you, how can you imagine that? Well, to me, conversion can come about out of recognition, right? A, a recognition that God is already at work in your life, that God has been at work in your life that God will continue to uphold you. And, and as we talked about this earlier, it's, it's all around and this person just never tuned into it before, never trusted this sense, right? So by the same vein, you could say that a person who acts out of racism and prejudice are acting acting sadly 
out of a misunderstanding of, of humanity, right? They're, they're not even, maybe not even realizing that, that they are treating, seeing, behaving as though someone else is less than they are. Less than they are. Because that is at the, at the heart of it. You were saying this person has worth and this person does not, or my worth is more than that person's worth, right? So how do we bring someone to see that? Right. Um, to me, the, the work of that, however it happens, that, that's a conversion. Asking um, someone to see beyond themselves and to see deep in their heart to, to what is. You know, is this really the way the world is? Mm -hmm. Right. Can you come, come beyond your fear? Because a lot of racism is based on fear. Can you come beyond your fear to see that this person is your brother and not a separate other unknown. Bob Grip, who's in our audience tonight, asked a good question that's a follow-up one right now. Do you think Merton needed the fallow way of the monastery to prepare him for his prophetic outreach? Fallow way of the monastery. You know, that, that asked for an assumption of, of what his life would have been like if he had not been in the monastery. Um, you know, Merton did not plan to continue writing when he went into the monastery, right? It, it was his, um, his superiors that, that encouraged him to continue writing. I think the monastery gave him a place to, to look at, from which to look at the world, right? Um, to be able to read a lot, to, to um, converse with other people via letters. You know, would this have been this way if, if he had not? I, I don't know. Um, it's possible he could have been the same because, you know, he was a teacher before he went into the monastery. Yeah. He would have still been teaching he was a writer before then, maybe he would have still been writing. Um, and he, he was, come on, he was in certain ways, um, the, the, the freest monk of all monks, you know, he went to jazz clubs still, right? He, he, he had friends visit him. So I, I don't know how, how different he, he would have been. But, um, but I, do, I do think the monastery and, and the solitude and being able to be out on the grounds of Gethsemane fed his spiritual life. I do believe that. No question. I'd like to talk a little about um, some of the things you write towards the end of the book, uh, particularly around death. You talked about meeting death without fear. It was moving when you talked about <laughs> encountering Brother Paul, whom many of us know, and uh, then visiting Merton's grave. You said you were standing at Merton's grave and I cried. And then you have a line reflecting on death beyond Merton's and death in general, I think. There's something else. The veil between there and not there is thin. Sometimes I sense it. Even if I'll never know exactly what it is, there is something more. And I thought, oh, I want to hear what she says about the something more. 
like like what Alan like can I tell you what it is I, I don't know I what don't you were know. thinking I it's, don't it's, know and yet and yet how is it how is it that that I I can stand at Merton's grave and and mourn a person that I have never met you know to to wish fervently that that he was with me walking those grounds right um there, there has to be some sort of echo of us around afterwards. You know, my, my son, uh, he's, he's 17 now and he's writing his college essays. And, and of course, one of those essays is, is about Sandy Hook, you know, because he was in, he was in the school that day of the shootings and, and one of his friends died. And he's, he's experienced a, quite a bit of loss for, for being only 17. And in his essay, and, and he is he has also said to me, even when he was very young, he said, I just feel, I just feel Ben is here. Ben is all around us. Right. And and he even writes this in his essay that, that there's a sense that the people who we lost, who we lose, are still with us as long as we remember them. Right. So I I just think about there, there's an echo somehow. And, and if it's there, and if we can sense it, then, then we are somehow everywhere when, when we go to that other place. And I, I have no idea what it could be, but I don't know. There's, there's something familiar that feels familiar about it and, and yet not, I don't know. It's a mystery and yet familiar. Isn't that strange? Yeah. That's good. You mentioned Merton with you. Um, as, as I did the math, it looks like uh, you you encountered Merton in the Conjectures Passage about 10 years ago. Is that, yes. is that right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you did a lot of work. I mean, for somebody who started from scratch 10 years ago, the way you've gone through the material from Merton, you're very conversant with the, with the material. Um, and now the book's out. You become well-known, you're spending your evenings doing things like this. Uh, is Merton still with you? And, and where are you and he headed? Any clue? You know, um, I feel like, you know, after the book was done, uh, I felt like, I, I felt like I missed him. You know, uh -huh. especially earlier this, this year when the book came out, just feeling like I, I missed him. <laughs> and, but then something has come back to me about him and I don't know why or what it is. Um, I, I feel like I want to delve into his, uh, his letters now, his correspondence, because of course I have all the volumes of his correspondence, but um, I don't know. I, it's, it's a feeling. And, and when I write, I'm, I'm often just following a feeling or trying to answer a question. And, and maybe there's something more there. I have no idea. I also think a lot about about how he would have lived if he had lived, right? And, and what that would have been like. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep thinking about, it. I think somehow he's always gonna be around me, whether, whether or not we're actively, you know, I'm figuring out what, what I have to say about his work. I don't know, but um, 
but there are times, you know, I have this picture, this picture, there are times, you know, I, this is my favorite picture of Merton. And, and there's sometimes I just look at it and, and it's just such a mischievous look on his face. And it just, it feels like a friend. It feels like a friend to me. It's like, okay, let me go back and visit this friend again because I miss him. <laughs> I miss him. One, one of the things I, I loved about reading about your friendship with Merton is, is the times where you would give him advice. And I thought, well, that's, that's pretty cool. <laughs> um, so what, 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 uh, what precipitated that approach that, that you, were, you were up for telling? There was one point where I think it was the story with him and he said, you know, they, they could have done things differently. But of course, Merton wasn't wise enough to do it that way. And yeah. Um, so there's some really great one-liners like that where you're 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 not telling him off, but you are giving him some advice. Look, you know, whether we realize it or not, when we read books, I, I'm not the only one who does this. We talk back at the books, right? It was like yeah. I can't believe this. Um, there, there's a wonderful Bradley Cooper film, um, Silver Linings Playbook, and he's reading A Farewell to Arms, and he hates the ending of it, and he throws the book out of window in the middle of the night. He's like, and he throws it and and essentially that that's all I'm doing it's just I'm doing it out loud it's like oh my gosh I can't believe I can't believe he did this and you know Martin Martin was human right I mean we, we think of him as mystic and saint but he was he was human like the rest of us and and there are times when he he he's behaving or feeling like like people I know and and you know, if, if my son had done something like that, it's like, look, I, I have him sit him down and say, look, you cannot be behaving like this, right? If this was somebody I went to college with, I, you know, we'd sit down and have a debate about this or talk about it, right? If this were one of my brothers, you know, I, I'd take him to task about this, right? So I don't know. I, I guess it's it's the same thing. I, I see that, you know, sometimes I see him behave a certain way. It's like, look, I want better for you. You know better than this. And and I'm I'm willing to say that. Yeah. Yeah. How cool. Um, we've got time for two or three people have have uh, submitted some questions and yeah. and one takes us really back to the beginning and I, I would enjoy hearing this. Somebody's asking, um, can you speak a little more about Merton and the radio of nature? <laughs> so um, so what they're asking, Alan, is is that. You know, we started with the thing about nature and we've gone off on all these other different topics, right? Yep. So what, what the, the basis for what we were talking about here is the sense that you can tune into God through nature. And there's a part in the book where I talk about that the thing that Merton felt when he went out there in the woods for the first time, um, it was like, you know, when he was in the monastery, it's like he was on like a ham radio, like searching for a frequency and he couldn't get through because of the noise, because of the static. But once he went outside, it was like he could tune in, right? Maybe even become the frequency, right? That, that here is, here's the place where we can go and, and hear God, right? So, There is, there's very much a sense that we've been put in a certain place, right? For, for one reason or another. I mean, and I mean geographically, a place. 
there was a point where I was, I, I went for a walk and I talk about this in the book and I come to uh, one of the top of the knobs and I could um, see Gethsemane, right? It's, it's right there. And, and I got the sense of, you know, here is, you know, Merton must have had this sense of, of his whole world, right? You could look at that and, and see the whole, his whole world in his hand and consider, consider the gift of this particular place, this spot on the earth that he was drawn to, right? To consider, to, to be able to come out there in the woods and consider this spot and what God meant for him to learn from being in this place. And, and I think it, it, we learn something when we consider the ground from which we've grown, right? For, for Merton to, to be able to sit and look at Gethsemane, um, there are times when I consider, um, and Alan, I didn't tell you this, but, but I actually have a packet of, of dirt from my childhood home sure. that, that I, I have here, I keep in my office. Um, because I, I do believe that there's something from the very earth from which we've sprung that, that is a part of us and is, is part of that, that tuning in frequency of, of our connection to spirit, right? That, that somehow what we take in, the, the light, the, the earth, the trees, the smells, the flowers, that they're all ingrained in us so that we can learn something of ourselves. There is, um, there's a wonderful scene in, in the movie, The Lake House and um, with Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock and Christopher Plummer plays an architect and he's asking Keanu Reeves, his son about a project. Well, where do you think this is meant to be built? And he says, oh, I don't know. And, and his father says, oh, come on you know the light in Barcelona is very different from the light in Tokyo. And the light in Tokyo is very different from the light in Florence. If an architect is to have presence, he must consult with nature. He must be captivated by the light, always the light, right? So I use the phrase, the, the radio of nature because we, we are always, you know, we are in darkness, right? We are in noise. We, we may not even realize that, that we are trying to hear something, right? And we have this space, you know, even within a city, right? I, I loved going out and I spent a lot of time in Central Park when I lived in New York City because once you go away from concrete and barrenness, there is something that speaks to us, right? And I felt Thomas Merton heard it abundantly that he recognized, I loved, the, you know, one of the things that struck me about that passage from Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander is how he could recognize the birds. He, he goes through and talks about the order in which the birds awaken because he recognizes their bird song. And I, I just think, what, what does it take? How much do you need to be outside to recognize things like that, right? 
and and I think, and and this is why I started with the the poem. There is a hope and a comfort in the cycles of our world. In 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 the times that birds awake, in the autumn leaves falling, that that we are constantly experiencing time and death. And and I feel like this is not um, a message to be thrown away that, oh, this is it's spring, it's summer, it's fall, it's autumn. We are being taught the rhythm of our own bodies, the rhythm of our own lives. And Alan, maybe this comes back to the familiarity piece. Maybe a sense of death is familiar because this is what we live all the time. Right? We see a constant dying in autumn and in winter, but in spring, there's a return. Right? There is some sort of return. So I, don't know, I think there's a hope in that. There's a trust in that. You know, uh, like like the like that spiritual says, God is trying to tell you something. <laughs> and I think it's out there. I think Merton heard it. I, I really like that passage in conjectures as well. And I, I'm always struck by the fact that basically they're they're getting permission and then in, in humans' cases asking God for permission to be, yeah. to exist that brings us the gifts of all that. I'm going to ask you something here uh, at the end that may may give you some pause to think about something, and then and then I'm going to turn it back to Dan Horan for Dan Horn for the for the final word. Um, where I teach in one of the buildings that I've had a part of, we have a gratitude wall mm -hmm. where people put sticker notes on and and they just express gratitude for a whole variety of things very simple things and profound things. What would you say in thanks to Thomas Merton for what he's given you in terms of a friendship and his writings, if you were to, to be able to thank him to express gratitude to Merton, I'd be, I'd be really intrigued to eavesdrop and hear what you would say to, to Thomas, your boy, as, as you put it in the, in early in the book. You know, I'm grateful that he was such a tremendous model of flawed humanity and spirituality. I thank him for being him, right? Um, I, loved, I loved his engagement with life, with, with his faith, right? And there is a passion about him. And, and that's, that's hard to come by these days where there are people who don't even know what they like. If you ask them, well, what do you like? What are you passionate about? They cannot answer that question. So I, I thank him for, for just not being afraid to be in the struggle and to write about it, right? To put words to the page to say, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, God help me, <laughs> you know, and, and, and to be confused. And, and to be uh, silly, right? And, and to be willing to, to, to be Thomas. Well, you thank Merton and, and we, we really thank you for not only being here tonight, but for the book and, and uh, the wonderful uh, 
ongoing gift that can be to those of us who will read it and reread it. So, Dan, my friend. Thank you, Alan. I, I echo Alan's thanks to you, Sophronia. Thank you for the book. It's a tremendous gift to, uh, to all of us. And for those who haven't yet picked it up, I encourage you, there's a link also in the chat. You can find out uh, more about it and where to get it. That's available everywhere you get books, including that large uh, monopoly that I will not name. Uh, <laughs> but uh, even if you get it through there, it's worth it. Um, thank you, Sophronia. Thank you so much. Alan, thank you as well for, uh, you know, for the wonderful hosting and facilitating of this very moving and deep uh, conversation discussion. One of the things that's wonderful about uh, the ITMS is that it brings together, as you two both discussed, friends of Thomas Merton, and there are so many that are gathered here this evening. So thank you to all of you who have joined us live, and for all of those who will be watching or listening to us on YouTube or the podcast. Um, so to that end, I thank uh, Bob Grip, who is our uh, YouTube producer, who will make this available later for people to go back and rewatch and for new folks to find it. To Mark Mead from the Thomas Merton Center at Bellarmine University, who makes these discussions and presentations available as podcasts. You can find links to the recordings of previous webinars uh, at merton.org ITMS. The link's also in the chat. There you can also find information about the International Thomas Merton Society, if you're not already a member, we invite you to consider joining. Um, I will also say before I make the last announcement about next month's uh, presenter, that if you wondered where is Sister Teresa Sandock and why is this bald Franciscan uh, here talking in her stead, uh, we, we miss her, but she, is not, she will not be gone indefinitely. She could not join us this evening, but she'll be back soon enough. And Alan and I eagerly await her return since she is the uh, MC par excellence and I'm just a mere substitute, so bear with me. Um, next month, we are delighted to have Father James Martin, SJ, uh, the Jesuit author and priest, uh, who will be joining us for a conversation titled Prayer and Thomas Merton, a conversation with Father James Martin. Um, we thank you again for joining us this evening, and we wish you all the best until next month. Thank you.